So let me put into context for you the book of Daniel. We just finished studying the book of Joshua. So you go through the history of Israel chronologically. I won't go through the entirety of it, but they, they were in bondage in a sense in Egypt. They came out, crossed the Red Sea, uh, 40 years in the wilderness, then crossed the Jordan through Joshua, occupied the promised land, Canaan, land flowing with milk and honey. Uh, they go through a series of judges, and then God gives them a king and Saul. And uh, then David rises up, um, in, in, you know, a man after God's own heart. Uh, David establishes the line of the tribe of Judah, the son of David, which is the, the term for the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Under David, the kingdom expands to its greatest, um, to, to its greatness. It w- wouldn't surpass the borders that it had at that point. And then David dies and Solomon takes over. Solomon begins to compromise and then the kingdom later is split with different uh, kings. You have the northern and the southern kingdom, Judah and Israel. And they all begin to compromise in their faith and from the foundations and move away from what David declared. And this once great nation that served the Lord all of a sudden starts to decline. Israel uh, starts to fall away. And now we have Judah. Judah's still remaining, um, but it's going through just a decline in its morality. While other nations are rising up and all of a sudden we, we pick up with Daniel. And Daniel, in his generation... Uh, Israel, or I should say Judah, is invaded. Jehoiakim, the king, is invaded by Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. And, and then all the Israelites, the Jews, are taken captive into Babylon. And while they're taken captive into Babylon, uh, we also find later in, in, in the passage of Scripture in 586 B.C. that Jerusalem is destroyed. So in 606 B.C., that's when Daniel's taken captive. 586, Jerusalem's destroyed. So when Daniel's taken out of Jerusalem, he'll never see it again. And, and we're going to get to Daniel chapter 6. He's going to be in his 80s. He's going to live the entirety of his life in Babylon, which is modern-day Iran and Persia. And, and he's, he, he'll never return to Israel again. He'll never return to Jerusalem. His heart's broken. And he's a young boy when he's taken captive. And if you also look at Jeremiah 29, 11, we love to quote this verse and we just put it on little you know, notes to our friends. It's just so sweet. I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, to give you hope in future. Isn't that just lovely? Doesn't that just make you feel good? You put it into context. Jeremiah 29 is an awful passage. And God is saying, you're going into 200 years of exile. And, and when you're living in this nation that isn't your own and you're going to be enslaved to them, I want you to build houses, plant vineyards, give your children in marriage, be given in marriage. I want you to build communities within that. Stay connected, stay faithful. And then you, you, I know the plans I have for you. In 200 years, I'll let you out. The people I'm writing it to right now, you'll never see that, but your kids will. So just keep having them. Bless you. <laughs> and we just love to quote that and send that to our friends. They're in exile. And, and this, is, this is Daniel. He's in exile. And Israel's destroyed. And we're going to see later that, that Esther will stand um, and, and, and with, with Mordecai. And they're going to save the Jews from annihilation of, of, uh, uh, of Haman. And, and then we're going to see Ezra where the, you know, Jerusalem's going to be rebuilt and Hezekiah will finish the wall and there'll be this remnant. And then we'll get into the last portion of the New Testament, which is Malachi, or as the Italians in the room like call Malachi. And we'll get into that last section. And then through that, we're going to see the Messiah come out of, of, of Jerusalem. And then we're going to have the Gospels. And here we are today as a result of the faithfulness. And that lineage is going to carry from David all the way to the Messiah, both in the lineage of Mary and Joseph. But right now, none of that makes sense. Good morning. 
None of that makes sense to Daniel. And the reason why is because his world is getting turned upside down. Please stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. Daniel chapter 1, I'll read eight verses. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. Then the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, young men in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank, and three years of training for them, so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king." Now from among those sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. To them the chief of the eunuchs gave names. He gave Daniel the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. That'll be our passage. Lord, we ask your blessing on the study of your word. I pray, Lord, that you'd guide and direct and minister. I pray that you'd encourage. I pray that you'd strengthen. I know there's folks in here right now that just wonder what you're up to and why you're doing what you're doing, and they're struggling. They trust you, but like all of us, in some point or time, in the testing of our faith, we don't understand you. But we do trust you. God, help our unbelief, strengthen our faith. Bless us, Lord, that we would serve you as instruments of righteousness in a fallen world. We thank you, God, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, please be seated. So historically speaking, Outside of scripture itself, we can look at historical accounts and we know that, that uh, Nebuchadnezzar was the father of, of uh, Nebuchadnezzar. We know that the Babylonians ruled. We, knew, we know that the, the Persians came in and then we have the Medes and the Persians and the Babylonian Empire. We know uh, by historical accounts, apart from the Bible itself, that in 606 BC that Jerusalem was besieged. We know in 586 that it was destroyed. We know all of these historical facts, but what we find in Daniel chapter 1 is a a personal account of how somebody's life was directly impacted in the affairs of governments that, that God allows to his sovereign hand to rule in the affairs of men. And so as we're seeing empires change and things you know, unfold before our very eyes, there is a man of faith in the midst of all of it whose life is enormously impacted. And through this, we, we glean and we gain understanding in a, in a great capacity. And this is, this is Daniel's life. And the fascinating thing about Daniel is he doesn't implode when his, his homeland is taken, when his family is destroyed. Not only does he not implode, he survives. And not only does he survive, he flourishes in the midst of it. And the question is, how? Because let me put it into perspective when it says, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. They took his country 
And we find out from Plato that before you could stand before the king, you had to have been trained for at least three years and you could only stand before the king at the age of 17. So the likelihood is Daniel is either 13 or 14 years of age when he's besieged, his nation is besieged and he's taken to Babylon and he's gonna be made a eunuch and he's gonna be forced to serve in the king's palace at 13 years of age. And in addition, his country was taken. I mean, we can't fathom that. They took his country. Now let me just give you an idea of what's happening in Babylon currently, in Iran, in Iraq. ISIS is moving in. We're watching as these children are taken prisoner and their parents are beheaded. More than likely, this is exactly what happened to Daniel. He witnessed with his own eyes the death of his parents. They were killed at the hands of the Babylonians when they were besieged. Beheaded. They took the children that were good looking. You, not you, not you, not you, not you. Yes, you. Kill them, kill them, kill them, kill them. Keep him. Keep her. Kill them. Uh, kill all of them. Bring them. And by the point of a, of a leader's finger, one would live and many would die. And they would take the best of the children and they would imprison them and cart them to Babylon, from Jerusalem to Babylon, hundreds of miles. And they would arrive. He'd lose his family, he'd lose his country. They would mutilate his body. They'd take his name. At 13 years of age, his parents had given him a name early on. They called him Daniel. God is my judge. At 13 years of age, he'd already experienced his rite of passage from boy to man. Every 13-year-old in their bar mitzvah would have to have memorized Psalm 119. The entirety of the Hebrew alphabet, speaking of the power of the word of God in the life of a person. They'd be accountable for all their decisions. You're a man now, son. Your name is Daniel. God is my judge. And from this day forward, you are responsible for all your decisions. And Daniel would take that at 13 years of age. And after that bar mitzvah, after that rite of passage, after he would, he would realize this, shortly after that at 13, he would watch his family decimated. His country destroyed. He's being led as a prisoner by people who don't even speak his language to a country he's never been, to a land far away from the home he had grown up in. And with him are three other friends, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. Hananiah means God is gracious. Mishael means who is like the Lord. Azariah means God is our help. And you can imagine Daniel at 13 years of age knowing that this name and, and remembering God's word and declaring, God is my judge. I will survive this. I will hold dear to the Lord. They're going to try to indoctrinate me. They're going to try to intoxicate me. They're going to try to change me, but I will stand firm in the things of God. Mom and dad taught me right. And then they would turn and he would look to his friend and he, and he would see Hananiah. And he, Hananiah, you can't do that. We've got to hold the line. And Hananiah would say to Daniel, ease up. God's gracious. And Hananiah would encourage Daniel, and Daniel would encourage Hananiah. And there were times that he needed to realize, God's your judge, Hananiah. And Hananiah would have to say, Daniel, you've got to realize sometimes God's gracious. And they would be friends. As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. And then Mishael, when they would declare of how expansive the kingdom was, and they would look at all the delicacies of Babylon, and they'd be intrigued by the baubles and the trinkets of Babylon, this, this great empire, Mishael would say, no, 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 no. Get your eyes off of this. Look to the heavens. 
God holds those in the span of his hand. We can direct from the night sky where north is based on the Big Dipper and the last two stars. The sun rises and the sun sets and there are four seasons and the snow falls on the hills and then it melts in the summer and creates the, the waters that, that, that nourish the plants and the crops grow and God blesses us. Our, our God is amazing. Who is like the Lord? And they would be marveled at it when they'd have their eyes on Babylon. Mishael would say, no, look to the heavens. And in those moments when they would be so overwhelmed and Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael would be struggling, even with God is my judge and God is gracious and who is like the Lord, they would still go through those times where they would be longing for their families and their parents that would have been killed. And Azariah would say, God is our help. He will be for us whatever we need when we need it. And each of these friends who's closer than a brother, would strengthen one another. And I marvel at Daniel as he's, he's penning these words through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, in the third year, the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem to besiege it. That I understand. Nations come and nations go. But the part that hurt was verse two. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. God let Babylon destroy the apple of his eye. God let his people get hurt. God allowed me to lose. God allowed your loved one to die. He's sovereign. He holds the heavens in the span of his hand. I don't understand him, but I'm left with a call to trust him. And it's only in those moments where our faith goes deeper. It's only in those moments where you can say, according to Romans 8, 28, that all things work together for good with those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And maybe this side of heaven, I may never know how it works together for good. I just know it does. And as our faith is tested, he would say, why would God give Jude into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar? And we, we think to ourselves, God, why would you allow this to happen to us? We work so hard. Have we really? Have we really? Jesus on the Via Dolorosa sweat as though it were drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane endured a beating where his back was into hamburger meat. His hands were pierced. His feet were pierced. A crown of thorns went on his skull. They pulled his beard out of his face. They speared his side. We don't know tough. And prophets who've gone before and what they've endured, Paul was left for dead three times. He'd, he'd been stoned. He'd been shipwrecked. He'd been, he'd been at perils of robbers, at perils in land, at perils of sea. He'd been bitten by a serpent. And ultimately, he was beheaded. Peter was crucified upside down in the presence of his wife who had been crucified before his eyes. What kind of a God does this to his disciples? Let alone to his own son. And then he would declare in, his, in our weakness, God's strength is made perfect. When Christ would say in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, if there be any way this cup pass from me, but not my will, thy will be done. As the disciples looked at their crucified Savior on Golgotha, thinking, this was not what I was planning. 
You were going to come in and put the, your boot on the neck of Rome and deliver us from this oppression. And you're dead. You're bleeding. What kind of a savior are you? What kind of savior bleeds? What kind of savior dies? Unless a seed dies and is buried, does it not resurrect? He brings out of death life. The veil would be torn. The rock would be split. The, the, the temple would be shook. The ground would shake. The dead would rise at the death of a savior because the grave couldn't hold him. God declares to us, we're already dead. The apostle Paul would say, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. It's Christ who lives in me. When he takes you through times where he breaks your heart, he breaks your heart because he wants you to realize it's not about you. It's not about me. It's about him. I'm dead. You can't insult a dead man. You can't, you can't discourage a dead man. God says, I don't, I don't need you to tell me what to do. All I need is a vessel. Will you trust me? And boy, does he test you. And just like Mike Rizel with that clay and last week, you just don't want to, you know, you fight the hands of the potter. And he wants to center you in his will and he's fighting you. And the clay's hard and the water of the word softens it. And you center your life on the Lord and then he can fashion you into the vessel he desires. Whatever he wants. And in the process of this, you can imagine as, as Daniel at 13 years of age is writing the words, God gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. At 13, he is resolved to acknowledge the will of God, that his life is in absolute turmoil because of the mighty hand of God. And he would still not deny his name. God is my judge. Daniel would stand strong. He would witness the articles of the temple, these sanctified holy vessels being pillaged in the temple that he would worship in, now being brought into the, the, the house of Bel. These false gods with a small G, and they would mock them, and they'd pour wine into them, party with them. They'd defile and ridicule the God of heaven. And Daniel would say, where are you? When will you rise in defense of that which is righteous? I'm crying out to you. And he would say to Daniel, it's not now. My timing is perfect. Thousands of years later in Calvary Chapel, God speak in Newberry Park, California, I have a group of people who are gonna need to hear this word. Daniel, you don't know that. You won't even be able to fathom it. I see the beginning from the end and all points in between. Just do what I tell you to do. And Daniel would write it. If things couldn't get worse, the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, young men in whom there was no blemish, good-looking, good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had the ability to serve in the king's palace and whom they might be able to teach the language and the literature of the Chaldeans. Yes, let's bring these children whose parents have been murdered and we'll bring them in. Do away with those children. Yes, that's a good looking one. That one appears to be smart. Give them the test. Give them the battery. Much like communist Russia, when, when their, their athletic program, they would, they would bring in hordes of children and they would give them lessons and they would, they would see if they had a ballet ability or if they, they had gymnastics ability or, or if they had weightlifting ability or if they could run fast. And then we'll pump them full of, of steroids and we'll make a superhuman race and we'll compete in the Olympics and we'll dominate everything imaginable. We'll do blood doping and we'll, we'll have a super race of humans. And the children that couldn't compete, do away with them. Put them out in a dacha. Put them out in, in Siberia. But these children, these are the supreme ones. They're good looking. 
They're the Aryan poster children. And so a whole race of humanity are only objects to, to elevate a government that is abusive and using children for the sake of serving their kingdom instead of realizing that they're a gift from God and that his parents were entrusted as stewards over their lives to impart to them the idea that God is judge, God is gracious, who is like the Lord, God is our help. To instruct them in the way that they should go so that when they're older they won't leave that. And we we say in relation to that as we watch as Ashpenaz and Nebuchadnezzar are trying to instruct the children in the way of the Chaldeans, we say, well, that doesn't happen today. Really? It used to be in the United States of America you could not become a state under the Northwest Ordinance unless you taught the Bible in public schools. You couldn't get funding. Up until 1937, the number one textbook in America was the New England Primer. Nobody knows that. You read the New England Primer, it's about this big. It's all about the Lord. I remember praying in school. I, rem- I was led to Christ by an English teacher, Robin Adair. What a different world. We were, we were raised with this realization that the First Amendment, we, the, this, this idea of religious liberty... The Declaration of Independence that we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and down by their creator with certain inalienable rights among those being life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. Those inalienable rights come from a creator. But if we, if we declare in our public schools that that creator no longer exists and that there's only evolution, then we remove their rights come from, coming from God and now they're dictated by those who are in power. You have not been created. You are a primordial soup. You're a blob of tissue. You are a ward on the side of a frog that devolved into a human being and you're just here because you're by accident. It's survival of the fittest and you're shouting in the darkness. And I just sat through Interstellar, a two hour and 45 minute movie and through the entirety of it, they didn't even, they didn't even say God's name once. And then the secret I found in this movie, and I've been wondering about it, the secret of this movie is you just have to get to the fifth dimension. And we are God. <sighs> I am so thankful they figured that out. Thousands of years, and all we have to do is just get behind the bookshelf and hit it until books fall out. We can talk to our future generation. Don't watch it. It'll give you stretch marks on your brain. And you'll leave there going, this is the best that they've got? And the closest they could come to God was talking about love. Well, it's something that motivates us, but I don't really know what it is and where it comes from, and I don't know what dimension it is. That's the spectacular nature of Hollywood. That's the best we have. And here we see in Daniel, this is, this is, this is a man who now is, is, is an attempt to indoctrinate him. And what they do is they bring these children in and that they might teach them the language and the literature of the Chaldeans. Not to educate them, but to indoctrinate them. Not to inform them, but to form them. They want to move them away from what they hold dear. Your name is no longer your name. It's, it's going to go from God as judge to Belteshazzar, which means may Bel protect you. Forget your name, Daniel. Whatever your parents taught you, you're ours now. You're part of the public school system. Forget God, forget anything you've been taught. This isn't, we have you now for six hours a day of education and we will impart to you that which we think you need to consider important. And those things that you hold dear, your parents hold dear, are no longer important. We're, we're, not, we're not gonna inform you, we're gonna form you. We're not gonna educate you, we're gonna indoctrinate you. And we're gonna do it at a young age. Because Nebuchadnezzar understood that the wealth of a nation isn't in its gold, it's not in its silver, it's not in its oil, it's in its youth. 
Abraham Lincoln would say that, that, that freedom, whatever is taught to this generation will be the government of the next. We don't get that. Because if we did, we would be serving on Little League and Boy Scouts and we'd be serving, we'd be English teachers leading children to Christ. A lot of us get it in, in here. But we look at it and we say, well, I'm too busy for that. And you know, the school does an okay job. I don't really want to serve on the PTA. Why? Why? PTA needs you and you need the PTA. This is our community. You think, well, how are we indoctrinating children? You spend 40, 40 to $50,000 a year to send your kid away to school. Here, here are some classes that they take. This is at the University of Michigan. How to be gay with introduction to the gay life. UC Berkeley, male sexuality. Dartmouth, queer theory, queer text. Cornell, here's a really good class. Gay fiction. University of Pennsylvania, which was founded, I think, if I'm not mistaken, uh, by Benjamin Franklin, big endowment there. Feminine critique of Christianity. Bucknell University. Witchcraft and politics. It must be an interesting class. Yale, which is a university that was founded to promote ministers and to create ministers along with Harvard in the early years. Their, their class that they want to instruct your children at $50,000 a year. AIDS and society. University of Indiana has got it better. This is a great class, and I, I can't wait to take it. Star Trek is religion. Columbia University, sorcery and magic. UCSB, Marxism. You don't belong to the God of your parents anymore. You're ours now. And we've got your parents giving us $50,000 a year. And now it's no longer going to be the God of your parents. It's going to be the God of your experience. And just go with it. And so we're going to have all kinds of experimental things on campus and you're going to experience your sexuality and you get to you know drop it and tune out go deep and in the process of this it's no longer an education it's an indoctrination and all of us struggle and this is what they were doing they were attempting to indoctrinate instead of educate if that wasn't enough, verse 5 says, And the king appointed daily provisions of the king's delicacies and of the wine he drank for three years of training for them so that at the end that they might serve before the king. They didn't just indoctrinate him. They were ready to intoxicate him. Every Red Bull, any drug you want, we got all the best wines. This is life right here. Look at the palace. This is what happens to good kids. You know, American Idol, you rise to the surface. Only the good kids are the ones. And this is the models that we set. You want to be the kid that can sing. You want to be the kid that looks good. You want to be Captain No Pimple. You want to be chiseled out of granite. You want to be the kid that everyone looks up to because you have the voice. You have the acting ability. And we elevate you. And we, we call you an idol. And, we, and then you get all of the the entrapment, you get all the bells and whistles that come with this popularity. And if you don't handle it well, you're going to be on the tabloid at the checkout at the supermarket. And then we'll make fun of you until another one rises. And we're just going to cast you off as a servant in the palace of the king. As we just throw all of our children at this indoctrination, this intoxication of Babylon. And here you see it. Not only indoctrination, not only intoxication, as it's all being paraded before these, these four, four young men. But then they try to change him. 
They bring Daniel in front of the king and he says, Daniel, your name is no longer Daniel. We'll be called Belteshazzar. Instead of God is my judge, may Bel protect you. Hananiah, uh, the God is gracious thing. Your God is dead. Ours is alive. We're going to call you Shadrach, illumined by Ra. You've been illumined by Ra. Ra? Ra. I've been to Cairo. I've been to Alexandria. I've seen temples. Ra's dead. The temples are destroyed. They're falling apart. They're deteriorating. And Mishael, who is like the Lord? Who is like the Lord? Your God is dead. Your parents gave you a name that no longer entails a God that is alive. If he's alive, where is he? Mishael, we're going to change your name to Meshach. Who is like Azev? Who? Exactly. And you, Azariah, God is our help. He hasn't helped you. You're languishing. You are ours now. We will give you the name Abednego, servant of Nebo. Nemo? Nebo. Elbow? Nebo. Nebo. Who is he? Don't know. Forget about this idea that God is your judge or God is gracious or that, that who is like the Lord or, or God is our help. Give that up, boys. That's the God of your parents. And here's the amazing thing about Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah. Amazing thing about them. It's in the midst of this heaviness, in the midst of all of this, where they've lost their parents, they've lost their nation, they've lost everything. You took my name, you took my nation, you took my education, but you can't take my God. And you know why? Because their parents instilled in them to the age of 13 what it means to walk with God. And when they were removed from the equation, these men stood, men. We don't raise teenagers. Girls, girls and women, I'll preach it. Girls and women, (laughs) girls and women, boys and men. And we're stewards. And you make a difference in the world. Or you can just be apathetic and you go, you know what, I don't, I don't get involved in the public school system and I, I just, I'm going to homeschool my kids and you just, keep, you just keep backing up and building the wall, defensive positions until you get to your bunker and we'll all end up at the Alamo in Texas. <laughs> Literally. But the Bible says that you push back the gates of hell. You're more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. Instill in your children that God is judge, God is gracious, the Lord is our help, who is like the Lord. Let them see this in your own lives. I bet you Daniel's parents stood before the invaders of Babylon and said, you can take my life. I'm immortal until God's done with me. What are you going to do? Threaten me with heaven? I'm not afraid of you. Boom, neck comes off. Or head comes off the neck. And Daniel watches his parents stood in strength. We've been given a great gift. Don't let the world change the name of our children. Don't let them indoctrinate them or intoxicate them. Stand, having done all to stand. Show them, lead them by example. And I'll tell you as I close with this last thought. When the world tells me, and I remember being young before I had had the chance to come to Christ in a profound way. The God of my experience, I wasn't raised in a Christian home. My parents were good people, but I wasn't raised in a Christian home. I, I was smoking by the time I was in fourth grade. And I, how much trouble can you get in in Coronado? I mean, I was raised as a marshmallow in milk in Coronado. I mean, it was just 
But if there was trouble, I found it. And if you want to talk about the God of my experience, the God of my experience was Satan. Life was hell until I came into contact with the God of my deliverance, Jesus Christ. I am who I am today because of what Christ did. Let's let our kids see the power of that. I close with this last thought as, as the world tries to indoctrinate and intoxicate and change our children's names. The part that moves me is verse eight. Verse eight says, but Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's delicacies nor with the wine which he drank. He went on to the request of the, of the chief eunuch and he would live for over 80 years standing firmly upon the things of God. And you know, one of the things that blows me away is that when, when you're gonna see in Daniel chapter six, he's 80 years old and he's gonna open the window and look towards Jerusalem that he'll never see for the remainder of his lifetime and he'll be weeping. And I remember with my mother when she was dying and she recounted an, an issue with her father that had happened when she was four. And it was as fresh in that hospital room as the day it happened. And Daniel's looking out that window to a Jerusalem he hadn't seen in 70 years. As burdened by it as, as the day he left. As committed to the things of God as the day he left. And he would, he would be ridiculed with Psalm 137. By the rivers of Babylon there we sat down. Yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. We hung our harps upon the willows in the midst of it for those who carried us away captive asked us for a song and those who plundered us requested happiness saying, sing us one of those songs of Zion. It's like saying, sing me one of those Negro spirituals, one of those songs you used to sing when you were in Africa. Jump, do as you're told. Your heart would break in the enslavement of your life. Where is God in the midst of that? And he would sing Psalm 137. His heart would break for Jerusalem, but he would never waver. He would never compromise so that thousands of years later, you could sit in this room after a rocking Tuesday and say, God is my strength. God is my help. God is my judge. God is gracious. God is with us. And if Daniel could believe it, so could we. When Daniel said in his passage that I purposed in my heart that I would not defile myself to the God of gods and the King of kings and the Lord of lords, he stood firm. And I, I'd like to say at 50 that I have the heart of Daniel. I have to tell you, I'm more like a David or a Abraham and I, and I love heroes of the Old Testament because They fail. And I relate to that. But Daniel's, I don't get. Joseph's, I don't get. There's no failure in their life in the scripture. I mean, they, they're immovable forces. Faith so unbelievably strong that your lives are inspired by them. And at 50 years of, of age, having studied the life of David, relating more to David and reading the Psalms of David. There I was, lamenting Tuesday in the depression of Wednesday. And through that heartache on Wednesday, a text comes through. And the text came from a Daniel, a young man, not much older than Daniel. 
A text came through from a young man. And, and that's that generation. They're, they're tech savvy. And this thing, bloop, pops up. And there I am in my pity party, wondering if we've made a difference. And this young Daniel, I won't say his name, he writes, Rob, there's at least 20 Channel Island students who care enough about politics now to vote on election day. And that's because you ran for office. They wouldn't stop talking about it yesterday. That will affect them for the rest of their lives. Countless of my friends and acquaintances actually understand now how Jesus and politics aren't mutually exclusive simply because you stepped out in faith. This was never about winning. It was about making a statement and awakening a sleeping giant. I actually believe people will be more awakened now than the election, uh, more awakened now that the election didn't turn out the way we thought or hoped. God's given me this image of thousands of Christian hearts being convicted because of the outcome. A thousand votes isn't much of a, of a landslide. There are at least that many Christians who could have changed the outcome. That's the most powerful statement of all. And I believe you made it. So praise the Lord for that. He's going to make so much good come from the past nine months. I also know that the enemy is fighting hard to keep Jesus out of politics, out of our schools, even off college campuses. I rejoice that we're finally facing actual persecution from the negative ads and the attacks against your character to the ban against InterVarsity and other Christian clubs on all CSU campuses. It means we're doing something right. God will bring revival on his timing when it will bring him the most glory. He quotes Ezekiel 36. So be encouraged, Pastor. One loss now just means a greater victory later, 2 Corinthians 4. He said, God is stirring something up that is so much bigger than an election. I love you, Pastor. And I'm praying for you today. Thank you for reminding me that I have a voice. I'll never forget that. And I thought about that. That he would say to me that I reminded him that he has a voice. Daniel taught me God is faithful even in the midst of what appears to be a loss. It's always a victory. You know, Nebuchadnezzar understood that the wealth of a nation isn't its gold or its silver, it's oil. It's its children. And the reason why Daniel and Mishael and Hananiah and Azariah could stand in the midst of losing their family, their nation, and all those things. It's because men and women instilled in them what it means to serve the living God. That doesn't stop. It's more important today than it's ever been. The entire generation of young folks that have been moved by this continue to inspire them, continue to empower them. God will bless and he will strengthen and he will receive the glory. Amen. Amen. Lord, thank you for your word. I thank you, God, that in the midst of these trials and these difficulties, that Lord, as Daniel declared, in a sense, that they can take away my name, my nation, my education, but they cannot take away my God. When he didn't understand you, he fell back on those things that he did understand about you. He reflected back on the teachings of his parents. And in the midst of the heartache and the loneliness and the sadness and the fellowship of the suffering of the Savior, there his faith was perfected and strengthened. 
that thousands of years later in this room, when we desperately need a touch from your hand, O oh God, we hear it and receive it from the writings of Daniel. God, I pray for generations to come that what we do in this place will encourage generations to come. That our lives will be lived in such a way that generations will be inspired by the way we lived. And we will declare God is our judge, God is gracious, God is our help, and who is like the Lord. So I pray, Lord, that today you would inspire and strengthen our faith and bless us and encourage us in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's stand. Close with the doxology.